0: mm
1: Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Christina Newland, a freelance film critic, writer on film, culture and occasionally boxing, in addition to Christina's many credits and bylines in publications like Sight and Sound, The Guardian, Little White Lies, and Empire magazine, Christina runs the award-winning newsletter Sisters Under the Mink and edited the 2020 collection of essays she found it at the movies Women Writers on Sex, Desire and Cinema. Welcome, Christina. Hello. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here.
1: That's an impressive sort of run of, of, of projects and, and, and credits there.
2: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, actually, when you listed that off, I was like, wow, I have been quite busy.
1: You write about so many uh, aspects of of films. You do a lot of writing uh, around cinema. What areas are you sort of most personally uh, passionate about covering?
2: I think for me, like one of the things that I've realised connects a lot of my work, you know, particularly around like the anthology I did, which is to do with women viewers and desire and the newsletter I run, which is, you know, about the depiction of women in in crime cinema and TV. But it's very much about kind of where you situate yourself as a female viewer. That is something that always seems, I always seem to be coming back to. And I think when I first got into criticism, when I first started reading uh, avidly, when I was back at university, that I, you know, the people that I turned to, like Molly Haskell and Pauline Kale, were always interested in, in kind of examining that and how you identify with what you're seeing up there and where you place yourself in things that aren't necessarily for you or meant for you or made by other women as such but certainly like in terms of the way that i was watching films at first i you know was not discovering the feminist filmmaker straight away you're seeing a lot of the canon male stuff so yeah i think that that has always been if if i had to connect it connect the dots in any way i guess i would say that it would be something like that
1: being a professional writer a freelance film writer is it hard to sometimes you know get to write about that sort of area that you're you're most passionate about because I guess the market is driven by by what films are being produced and, and and all that sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, you just kind of have to wear a lot of hats. You know, my main gig now is I'm, I'm the lead film critic at the i-newspaper and that is very much responding to what's out at the moment, seeing what's most interesting to cover on a week-to-week basis. And, you know, I feel like I've been very, very fortunate because in the past few years we've just seen so many remarkable films by women filmmakers I mean just reviewed Ali and Ava like Clio Barnard like there's been a lot of really great stuff that's come out it's allowed me to um you know to explore stuff on the page you know within the word count
1: when something like Ali and Ava comes along is that when you roll up your sleeves and you're like okay this is my time to shine
2: well sure I mean yeah there's certain filmmakers that always kind of get your attention you know make you sit up but I think anyone that has like read my work is aware of the fact that I'm also really interested in masculinity and how I think, if you're, if, you know, I'm interested in the way that men are presented and how men present themselves, too. And I think that inevitably has a knock-on effect in terms of talking about and writing about women. So I guess I'm interested in that across the board.
1: It's really impressive how you've expanded into things like newsletters. And Sisters Under the Mink is a real achievement. How did you decide to start that? Um, and, and could you explain to listeners, you know, what the, the main thrust of, of the newsletter is?
2: So I started it uh, in January of last year. It was born out of the fact that, you know, partly to do with what you say, which is that sometimes as a freelance writer, you don't always have the time and space to go long on the stuff that you really, you know, are passionate about in that way. I have always been interested in, you know, women in crime films, Sisters Under the Mink, the name of it comes from The Big Heat, the great Fritz Lang film noir. Um, It's a quote from Gloria Graham, this hard boiled kind of dame talking to another about, you know, their complicity in the, you know, hierarchy of, of, of male crime and being kind of looked after by these men. Um, and I, I'm really interested in the moral ambiguities where you place yourself in that and where what it means, you know, it's not so straightforward as just being empowered or being feminist, really. Sometimes it's quite the opposite. In fact, there are some really rich pockets of even in very male-dominated cinema, where we haven't really spoken as much as we probably should be about where women are placed in that, as characters, as viewers, as filmmakers, you know, across the board. So it was a great opportunity for me to be able to to write, you know, quite researched, long-form essays and sometimes personal essays, depending on the subject, across, whether that's Yakuza films from Japan or contemporary HBO drama or whatever it is, that was a space for me to do that. and. I was very amazed that six months into doing it that I that I won a, a freelance writing award for it, which was incredible to me. Um, so yeah, that kind of did give me the give me the wherewithal to continue doing it as well, you know, to, to, to keep keep it going. What's
1: it like working with a, a DVD or a Blu-ray distributor on on, you know, I guess, revitalizing some of these you know, classic films?
2: It feels like an honor to be able to do it because I, I am like you in that way. I uh, love the tactile. Uh, me and my husband have a huge dvd collection uh, it's actually kind of eating my entire office so i basically I, I am at risk of death by dvd any day now. <laughs> literally stacked everywhere yeah um so it does feel like an honor because those boutique labels like indicator like criterion they have they have that quality and that love for what they're doing where the restorations are beautiful where there's so much care put into all the details of how they're how they're put out into the world and you know for people that obviously really treasure those things so yeah it always feels really special whether that's like uh, mostly it's been writing for me but like started to do some like video stuff and yeah it's just rewarding it feels very rewarding to be able to do it
1: I picked up the May West box set that came out recently and you're on that as well as previous podcast guest Pamela Hutchinson so it's a nice bringer together of people on the show too
2: oh yeah me and Pamela always <laughs> me and Pamela end up on a lot of uh, on a lot of stuff together sometimes because we, our interests are pretty um Close. We're actually working on something. We've just started to work on something together, which I'm excited about.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, well, that's great. <laughs> God, I, I'm just so as um, I, I find it quite hard to get motivated to to you know to do any sort of work of any kind, and I'm blown away by you know how many hats you're wearing, Christina. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes as as you know, I said to you before we started recording, it means me oversleeping and not getting be able to be dressed in time to like you know drink a cup of coffee in time for a podcast, but. <laughs> You know, the chaos comes with it.
1: Priorities. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're, when you're not watching movies for work, when you're watching a film just for Christina in your own time, does the runtime of, of a movie come into your decision-making process?
2: Sometimes, yes. Um, whilst I, I kind of consider myself equal, <laughs> equal opportunity when it comes to runtime, the rule, there is something so lovely about that feels like an appetizer or something that's easy to double bill, you know, when something is under 90 minutes long that, uh, or, you know, when you're tired at the end of the day, you know, that you know that you're going to still get into that at a good time. It's just like that, that sleekness is something which I think, you know, I'm sure in this podcast, you've discussed it before that we're sometimes sorely lacking in a lot of mainstream Hollywood fare, certainly. (laughs) So. It's something that, I, I don't say I got in my way to seek, but it is very nice sometimes.
1: It's like an added bonus. Like, I wanted to see this film anyway. I'm really excited to go to the movies and watch that. Oh, wow. Okay, I am going to get home at a reasonable hour. I'm going to have time for a proper dinner. I'm not going to have to just, you know, s- survive on popcorn and, and a giant Coke at the theatre.
2: And it's a big, big thing in film festivals too. Like, with film festivals, God knows, um, especially a few days in. If you're seeing, like, three to five films per day, you really... Yeah, <laughs> that's when run, t- run times really start to matter. Um, and yeah, I mean, like talking about pre code Hollywood films and stuff, when you, go, when you go see those and they're like 70 minutes long, I can remember a triple billing a uh, series of pre code films at Bologna, the, the film festival. Um, and like, you know, it was before noon, mainlining pre code cinema. You know, every time you watch one, you want to watch more. It's like eating a sweet or something.
1: We haven't had too many pre-code films on, but it's definitely an area I'm keen to, keen to explore. But I'm also keen to know what you brought to the episode today, Christina. What, what film will we be talking about today?
2: Uh, so we're talking about Anya Varda's Le Bonheur. Just this work of like slim, beautiful, well-disguised brutality. Though married
1: to the good-natured, beautiful Thérèse, young husband and father Francois finds himself falling unquestionably into an affair with an attractive postal worker. One of Agnes Varda's most provocative films, Le Bonheur examines a deceptively cheery palette and the spirited strains of Mozart, the ideas of fidelity and happiness in a modern, self-centred world.
2: This film kind of begins and spends most of its register in this kind of, gorgeous kind of pastoral French countryside in full summer bloom uh, and this beautiful young family who were a family in real life. Uh, the actor Jean-Claude, Jean-Claude Drew, Drew, I don't know to say his name because my, Drill, I'm American yes. and my French accent. Truly awful uh, so I just apologize for that <laughs> but um, yeah and it was his real his real wife and his real young children and they're sort of dressed like in these kind of crisp pastels and they're of ambling around its father's day little picnic that they're going on and it's such a gorgeous family and they are so very very happy together they seem to have this very kind of idyllic normal domestic life until the supposedly very very happy um husband francois meets this young woman and falls into a a month-long affair secret affair with her whilst maintaining the entire time that he's actually very very happy with his family and his wife so there is no kind of like discontent on his part to to precipitate this affair and you know ultimately there are tragic consequences because when he finally does tell his his wife about the affair he pitches it to her as if you know um he says something about how happiness is only you know happiness works by addition so that we can all be in this very happy kind of polyamorous <laughs> space together in spite of the fact that, you know, he didn't start from a place of honesty about it and how they're these different but similar. I think he compares them both to apple trees, you know, and this kind of pastoral image that he has of, of them. Uh, he seems to think that that's going to work out fine. And, and it doesn't. Uh, his wife happily submits to his face. They make love. And then she wanders off and drowns herself. It's, it is not your typical film about an affair, about infidelity. There's no screaming. There's no fighting there's no discontent marital discontent this you know it it absolutely just like switches on you um, in a way that's really deeply shocking
1: absolutely I think because it's it's so good at uh, making you feel so welcome and Um, at the beginning in the established relationship between Francois and his family, Therese, and and the children. Like, okay, Agnes Varda goes to such great lengths to show what looks like on the surface such a a picture, like an idyllic family. When she starts to play with uh, expectations, it hits home even harder uh, than it would do in a, I guess, you know, quote unquote, more standard movie uh, around a subject.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I fact, the fact that she doesn't uh, tone shift tonally at all, and, and actually like, visually, like it's still so beautiful and vibrant looking as a film. You are left as a viewer to your, almost to your own devices to then try to figure out what to make of this. Presumably suicide, it's left slightly ambiguous. You know, I think some people aren't sure that it is. I tend to think that seems to make the most sense. And then, to be honest with you, the last part of the film—the last, say, I don't know, fifteen minutes of the film or whatever it is—are probably worse than even the 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 suicide, which is that he then takes this, you know, up to this point quite free-spirited, I would say, mistress of his, and decides to, you know, marry her, and she kind of willingly becomes the mother figure. And she takes, you know, adopts these young children and completely replaces almost Stepford wife style, replaces Therese, replaces his first wife and does, you know, and and Varda shows her repeating almost identically the same domestic tasks at home, you know, with the children and stuff. And they seem to, after maybe, uh, you know, a fraction of sadness, that rotation you know there there seems to be absolutely no almost like sociopathic levels of like lack of empathy where she just picks up the slack and replaces his wife and he seems just as happy and so it, it, it's a very very i think subversive uh, take on on domestic and marital bliss and what what does a wife mean to somebody what does domestic happiness as the title implies I, I would think mean particularly to this man and to men in general when really it's very much about what they're getting from that exchange you know versus the personhood of the woman in question that they're married to
1: you're right in that the um the, the, just touching on the end again the, the those final 10 minutes or so where she's just uh the mistress is now part of the family and they're even wearing the same clothes they've got the same like matching jumper and, and 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 like trousers and it just feels so sort of automatic and heartless it's a really sort of chilling note to end on
2: yeah chilling is exactly the right the right word i've seen it described written about as a sort of like a, a horror film in disguise or something about a fact that it does sort of feel that way because i found it quite and i'm sure most people i'd imagine that watch it not knowing where where it's going you know, that the first segment, which is so lovely, you do kind of fall for it a bit. And maybe that's part of the trick that, you know, is presenting, you know, to the strains of Mozart, this absolutely postcard perfect family in, in basically every respect, how they're dressed physically, their environment, their relations, but also at home, that they seem to be completely in love and devoted to each other and have a great relationship and all of that, it is very seductive, I think. And I think the thing that's for me from Varda's eye as well, I think it's seductive to women because you have this, he's this very handsome young actor, these beautiful kids. This, it's very kind of set up, I think, for um, the spectatorship of a woman watching that in 1965 to find it as appealing as, as a man might. And then to suggest that, as you said, there's almost this automatic robotic replacement of her by the end of the film that ask some really poignant and uncomfortable questions about what does it actually mean to find that kind of bliss and how deep is it really Hello, I'm Helen from FlixWatcher. And I'm Kobe, also from FlixWatcher.
0: The Netflix review podcast you go to when you can't find anything to watch on Netflix.
2: That's right. We are another podcast in the Strip Media family. So if you've struggled to find a film on Netflix, then we're the podcast for you. And we have guests from other podcasts, big and small, and they're the ones that actually choose the films that we then rate and review and talk about in our show.
0: If you'd like to find out more about FlixWatcher or any of the other shows, visit www.strip.media to find out more.
1: I find our, our protagonist in this, Francois, so it's so hard to get a handle on. I guess because like we're we're sort of seeing a lot of the film through his eyes, and he's you know he's he's living the dream at the beginning. He seems happy at work. He's he's you know happy at, at home, but then you know what's his motivation to start the affair and and just trying to like get a handle on that was was sort of fascinating for me as well like trying to unpick this character and work out what he's motivated by
2: yeah and i think i mean that's so interesting isn't it because the the fact that she doesn't give us much of that and and uh also that he tends to spout these sort of truisms and uh these like poetic kind of remarks that he often makes what i said about the addition of you know happiness by addition and comparing women constantly to things in nature uh, and all this sort of stuff but like ultimately there's something really kind of empty there I mean I, I, I read it written that he could be like a psychopath or a cad but I don't think he actually is I think the whole almost the point for me is that Vard is showing him as like chillingly normal and chillingly kind of like you know not, he's not really lacking anything he's not insecure in any way he's not it's, it's really just about pure impulse and selfishness And it's not really any deeper than that. And that, like, there's something that's so surface level and empty about that. That's actually so much more chilling.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. It doesn't seem to be any sort of moral, you know, quandary with him or any regret or uncertainty. Like, he's very confident to the point, even when he's in that devastating scene where he tells his wife about the affair, he's just got it all sussed out because in his head he's worked out it's fine because he's still happy.
2: Yeah, there's absolutely no consideration of, and, you know, when he talks about the differences between the two women, he talks about what they can do for him. You know, he says one's, one's, you know, better at making love or more exciting, but the other is better with the children. You know, he, the way he's talking about it is fundamentally no different to how someone might have talked about it 20 or 30 years before that. So, you know, the fact that it's 1965 is, is uh, fairly null and void here um, in terms of, like, the progressiveness or, or lack thereof i found it quite interesting in, in doing some reading about it that the critical reception at the time was sort of mixed it did quite well on the festival circuit i think but i read some i read some really interesting particularly feminist critiques of the film um that really surprised me i guess um there was there was one from sight and sound sorry sight and sound but uh, a, a female writer for them elizabeth sussex um who i don't know much about at all she said Varda took a fool like Francois seriously and said she had a meaningless use of style for style's sake.
1: I'm surprised, especially from sight and sound.
2: Yeah, I think it was an interesting time, though, because, you know, this is only Varda's third film. I do think there was a certain expectation that as... Uh, one of the relatively few female filmmakers of that movement of the French New Wave and the Left Bank movement um, that she was going to make, if she was going to make a film that had a feminist intent, that perhaps it would have been more obvious, that maybe it would have been more on the surface. And this film is, I think the reason that it has such incredible staying power is because it isn't as much as I love, for example, what she made like over 10 years later, one sings, the other doesn't, which is very explicitly a feminist film. the, The ambiguity of it is I think what really adds to the film you know it's uncomfortable for that purpose it's not it's not that easy to to like quantify in a very particular way if you know what I mean
1: absolutely I think people feel uncomfortable when they can't quite put a pin in something and and like oh that is that is exactly that you know and I feel like this film if you don't quite know how to respond to it the uncomfortableness might might distance you from from the piece and you know and, and maybe that's why that critic didn't enjoy it I, I know um the the censors in france gave it quite a hard rating due to a lack of moral
2: judgment that's fascinating i thought you were going to say maybe because of this the frankness of some of the sex scenes but even though it's not you know super explicit i thought maybe it would be sexual that's i mean that yeah that's very catholic actually isn't it
1: yeah you know rated 18 for lack of moral judgment <laughs>
2: Well, things certainly do come full circle because it sounds like something somebody on Twitter would get angry about, doesn't it? It's <laughs> like ah. a good way. <laughs> but yeah, uh, like,
1: sixty yeah. years on or whatever, still still focusing on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, like if you're interested in seeing, oh, um, female characters that aren't strung along or are submitting to the to the whims of a man, or women who are, you know, uh, going to stand up to somebody as carelessly and almost sweetly idiotic uh, in terms of people's feelings, certainly a certain like moral insensitivity that this guy has, but you're not going to get that from this film because the women in this film are, you know, by design, very much by design and Varda's part completely kind of sculpted by their relationship with this man. So his wife is, I think it's really kind of telling that even at the very end when she's completely, presumably completely broken by him, his, his admitting his affair she submits to his version of things which is that this this will all work out because it's happiness by addition we can all be happy together i'm happier so you should be happier as a result you're just an extension of me Uh, and her kind of just going yeah 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 you know and then having sex with him and then and and then she goes off and does what she does but at no point does she actually challenge him so I think for people that might be a little like hard hard to swallow, but I think it's you know it's very much again by design on Varda's part because it's showing something really quite you know maybe even more tragic about that that lack of reaction that kind of um, almost blind acceptance of yeah, okay like this you, you know this is this is the version of events that my husband wants and I don't want to go against it because look at our life. I think yes, yeah, a really
1: I think it's a fascinating way to to discuss that and and I'm hoping that you know people at the time did have that. Uh, conversation around the film because it, it sort of very bluntly displays a lot of truths about society, uh, in this, you know, 80, 80, minute or so package gloriously put together as well. Like this is a, as a, as a piece to look at, you know, I was constantly like, oh, this, this shot's beautiful. This shot's beautiful. And after about 20 minutes, I was like, no, it's just all really beautiful. I don't need to note down the individual shots anymore.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, there was that like quote where she said that she, she imagined, um, like a summer peach that had a worm inside of it, which is just the most wonderful (laughs) description of that film, I think. Um, But she was really influenced by a lot of impressionist painters and stuff as well. And you can see that, you know, across the film, there's a beauty and a melancholy there. Because it is only her third film, she hasn't quite got to the stage of, you know, some of the more experimental or some of the more, I think, overtly self-conscious um, like so there's no like direct camera like she like, would do later on. And like there are tracking shots and jump cuts here, but they are fairly I guess it, it's not as experimental as some of her later work. It would be the the easiest way to sum it up. And yet there are still those little hints of, you know, the way she cross-cuts in certain scenes or the way that she's, you know, she uses a tracking shot to really illustrate, you know, this kind of unbroken, almost nightmarish surrealness of this the last, I guess, 15, 20 minutes of the film.
1: seen her work early in her career like uh, Cleo 5-7 to and then her last few films that she made in the noughties and and, and teens so I've I've got this huge sort of blind spot but this one still feels different to sort of her earlier work and her her later work. I know she had a long gap between this film and and her previous film and then she was on a roll I think she made a film the following year and then the following year in the 60s so this sort of, I think this one kickstarted a more productive part of her career. I'm not sure what she did you know, in that time, whether it was other projects outside of cinema, because she was also a photographer and, and, and did work with with art galleries and, and things. But uh, but yeah, this one definitely sort of cemented her back in cinema mode for like, you know, a really long run of consistently producing a picture every one or two years.
2: Yeah. And I mean, her immediate I can't recall the name of it actually off the top of my head, uh, but it was like she had a few kind of false starts and, and you know, uh, failure box office failures in the late 60s as well. Uh, so, you know, and even this film, I think it was, uh, yeah, the reception to it was fairly mixed. I think over the years, people have come to appreciate it more perhaps, or, or certainly I feel like there's been a bit of a reevaluation in the years leading up to Varda's passing and after that you see it, particularly in, in, in British and American film culture and cinephile culture. She has sort of become very revered and people are going back to some of the films that they have not, you know, haven't seen. And I think this film is one of those ones that a lot of people have seen afresh or seen for the first time. It does feel like a bit of an outlier. It's, I think the use of color, she was, she always had beautiful, a beautiful sense of composition and a beautiful like these beautiful kind of tracking shots it does feel like almost super attenuated super bright super kind of um, almost like her husband's films in a way a jacques Demy film you know that the, the brightness of that versus you know i think yeah the color palette she's working in for one thing is her use of mozart at the beginning and end of the film particularly like the two different mozart compositions are just like there's just something that's really kind of strange about le bonheur that is not just it's not disconnected from our other work but it does stand out and i think that's the case in general like i was trying to think of anything that is like it and i I struggled to think of anything quite like this film in terms of so many movies about marital discontent and so many films about affairs and matters of the heart in this kind of way um and many with a with a feminist bent to them but not very not very many like this tonally
1: i think that's what Makes it feel so fresh, even though it's, you know, 1965. It still feels, you know, cutting edge. I don't think it's particularly dated at all, which, uh, which still made it even more chilling in a way.
2: I, I definitely agree. It's something about its quality where, I mean, it's, it's a cliche to say somebody's ahead of their time. Um, and it's probably bandied around a little bit too much. But I think for a relatively young female filmmaker in 1965 to make a film that just does not pull its punches at all. It is so stridently kind of, you know, by the time you come to the end of the film, it, it, you know that it's telling you something real, like it's telling you something about the rot in the middle of these kind of um, heterosexual marital situations as, as they are kind of, you know, written into, into society. In a way that yeah feels quite courageous.
1: I read one critic describing it as a horror movie wrapped up in sunflowers, which is quite yes, a nice way to, to to posit it. I'm looking forward to rewatching it to to see if there are any sort of like cracks in Francois's character.
2: Maybe this is slightly sick and twisted of me, I don't know, but like I've been trying to get my husband to watch this film, and I, I don't know how to sell it. I'm just like it it's really fucked up. You've got to watch it. That's... <laughs> It's like, and also like it that, you know, the absolute per- perversion kind of of the fact that I would like, you know, there's something deeply perverse about me wanting to sit down with my husband and watch this movie. I get that. But it's just amazing. And I just I like, you know, as a fellow cinephile, I'm like, you need to see this thing. So I'm quite looking forward to, to watching it um, again with him. I really want to see his reaction to it. <laughs> no, it's, it's just such a remarkable film about gender relations. As to what you said about the the Francois character, I don't know that there were any cracks in his facade because I don't know that it's a facade. He's like so childishly kind of convinced of his own, um, you know, the supremacy of his happiness over anyone else's that it doesn't occur to him.
1: It's quite hard to relate to a character like that, I guess. So I'm always trying to sort of, being the eternal optimist, like, is there anything there, Francois? (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think the best he's got is that he's he's handsome. I think that's all he's got going for
1: (laughs) He is, he is a very handsome man. He reminded me of what a young Bill Hader must have looked like.
2: <laughs> I mean, the whole family are gorgeous, aren't they? I wonder where the, wonder where the children are now. You know, because they weren't—they weren't actors. They were not. You know, his wife and children were non-actors, and in a way, that is interesting in and of itself because it's like if I were to cast them like that. Um, I mean, part of it, I'm sure, is to do with their na- their na- their natural intimacy together, and their, you know, the the fact that they were also attractive. But like, also just. Is there something there about like a lack of affect from the wife, a lack of kind of the, the fact of her not trying to really act or her not being an actor gives her a certain blankness, which maybe heightens the kind of remoteness or the emptiness inside of these characters of, of the kind of, or, or maybe not the characters, but certainly of the, the situation, the hollowness of it.
1: That's true. I think yeah. The, in terms of the construction of the piece, it's a good, a good sort of flourish from from Varda. There's for that character. You have professional actors playing the the people having the affair. But for the equilibrium, you know, having a family of non actors around Francois is is kind of yeah. It's, it's, it's quite interesting uh, dynamic. Like they they are so good together on screen, but there's no. It's you know, it's not it's not a particularly a sparky relationship as compared to the affair he's having.
2: Yeah, that works so incredibly well. You know, it reminds me of the kind of the great neo realist, Italian neo realist directors and the way that they cast actors and non actors together in parts in ways which were often really uh really interesting it's
1: all for our benefit you know i think Varda's spoiled us with this incredible film which I, I just keep going back to you know what it does in what it achieves in that very sort of short runtime so it's a haunting treat but um but, but a treat nonetheless and something i do i do highly recommend um people go and seek out
2: yeah absolutely and also you know it, if, I, if i'm trying to like i said i, I never really know how to pitch it. it you always talk about how dark it ends up being but honestly for most of the film's runtime it it doesn't there is not really darkness the thing it's all out there in the light you know and that's what's so interesting about it and it's it's absolutely gorgeous to look at so you know it almost looks like some kind of you know like you could take any still from the film or any composition from the film and stick it on instagram it's got that kind of beauty like you know to be crass but it's got that kind of beauty to it
1: it's so deeply deeply sort of presenting itself as as something totally different on a, the visual uh, aspect of this Like if this story was told by, I don't know if it was a more contemporary American filmmaker or, you know, like if it was a 90s, one of my favourite genres, the 90s thriller, you know, it would be shot totally different. It'd be composed totally differently. You know, there'd be lots of nighttime scenes, I'm sure, and shadow. And in this, it's daylight, broad daylight um, throughout the the majority of the film.
2: Perhaps it takes a French intellectual to be able to put all that stuff out in the light, in the literal sunshine. And brightness of that film, rather than to immediately couch an affair in the shadows, which feels like a very British and American moral spectrum, if you know what I mean. That you know, it takes a certain courage to just throw it all out there. You know. Well,
1: there we have it. Le Bonheur is in our ninety minutes or less film festival. Our first, hopefully, of, of many. Agnes Varda films uh, that could join the lineup. I did have a quick look online earlier, and yeah, so many of her films are like 64 minutes long, 70 minutes. As as part of your uh, you know commitment as guest curator for programming Le Bonheur, we also need to choose a cinema. I can give you a print of the film and basically a blank check to present it how you wish. How would you like to screen the film to an audience, Christina?
2: I'm going to Paris for the first time. This weekend. So I feel like in honor of that and in honor of Varda, it has to be the Cinematheque Francais I would fill the room like Elton John with fresh flowers, completely fill the cinema with sunflowers. And I mean, a blank check, does that also mean that I get to resurrect the dead?
1: It, I mean with a blank check, I think you can go, yeah, pretty far in that direction.
2: I would love to know. I would love to hear from the actors. I would love to know how they were directed in terms of the inner psychology of these characters, because they are so ambiguous and they are kind of sometimes so surface level or or blank Um, We're kind of projecting onto them. I would love to know how they were directed in scene by Varda. So that would be I would love to see that I would love to see a Q&A A a, 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 a magical Q&A with the actors
1: Back from the dead for one night only (laughs) I uh, I think it'd be fascinating because we don't have that. I, I couldn't see it anyway in my sort of research of you know, like it's not readily readily available. You know, the cast talking about the film. So I think that would be a really great thing to be able to have for future audiences.
2: If you you had to like kind of give me a dream scenario relating to cinema, I think it's very Christina to want to resurrect the dead. That seems to be a running theme for me. Like yeah, harvest those interviews. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, well, I, I hopefully through the 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 uh, incredibly deep pockets of the ninety minutes I film festival we can help on this occasion. <laughs>
2: get some pagan rituals
1: in yeah <laughs> i love that though. i love going to paris to, to show this film i think that'd be a wonderful thing to do and and you know with the uh, added addition of um the the past actors and the uh the, the sunflowers if you had to you know curate a menu and serve some snacks uh, to go with this are you uh are you a sort of a snacky person when it comes to the cinema
2: i feel like it would just have to be wine wouldn't it really it would just have to be keep it simple you know you probably need a glass of wine when you finish the film because it is pretty brutal.
1: I think the audience should get a glass of wine when they come in to settle down and enjoy the film, and then another glass of wine on the way out.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go.
1: <laughs> uh, I, I think that would be, and like the audience would be a bit like, "What glass of wine on the way out?" And then after they've seen the film, they'll go, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah a glass of wine on the way out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to go." Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then you can jump on the Paris Metro and uh, a convenient runtime so you know you can pack in a nice big French dinner afterwards. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Oh, you've got me very excited for the weekend to come talking about
1: this. Thank you, Christina. it um say so really great to have Lebonna in the festival and thank you so much for, for your time for, for coming on and, and talking about the film with us.
2: No problem, it's a pleasure.
1: Where can people stay up to date with your, your work?
2: You can find me on Twitter, uh Christina Le Uh also in a French frame of mind when I wrote that uh, <laughs> like my Godardian reference when I was like 19 <laughs> but uh, yeah you can find me on twitter or uh, you can find me on the inews.co.uk website writing about film more or less every Friday
1: fantastic well we'll include links to those in the uh, in the show notes listeners do follow christina on social media thank you for joining us
2: thank you for having me and this has been really nice
1: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media
0: Network.